Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communication Chair, David Campbell. In this episode, we're going to recap some of the things that have been happening over the last month or so. It's been a busy January, frankly, and we'll take a moment to talk about some of those hot topics, particularly the recently concluded first joint MEC meeting between the Hawaiian and Alaska MECs, a recently concluded first quarter MEC meeting, the issues surrounding the MAX 9, an update on PBS implementation and the new reserve system, and the recently signed letters of agreement, which established incentive lines and an LOA adding additional flexibility to the ability of reserves to pick up on a day off. Now, I will note that the incentive line LOA also temporarily suspends the ability of reserves to pick up flying on a day off, and we will address why that provision was included. I'll be speaking with your MEC Chair, Will McQuillan, Negotiating Committee Chair, David Willem, Scheduling Chair and now Secretary-Elect, Captain Scott Rubin, and SPC Chair, Brad Beachler. Will, let's get started and um, fill us in on the the joint MEC meeting. That's probably one of the biggest new things. Thanks, David. Yeah, that was the, the first chance for both bodies to come together and really get to know each other. And the meeting was um, equal parts that, you know, sharing perspectives and getting to know one another, as well as uh, just a review of process steps and taking a look at pacing as we're going to hit each one of those steps. We did have Jason Ambrosi, the ALPA president, and ALPA National had legal staff out to review the steps of ALPA merger policy that exists under Section 45 of the admin manual. And we all had opportunities to ask questions and discuss, as I said, largely a lot of pacing work for each step. Importantly, we affirmed the three members of our negotiating committee who are going to become part of the joint negotiating committee, David Wilhelm and Israel Young and Justin Albright. And we also took the steps to affirm the members of our merger committee, our existing merger committee, with Greg Wirtz and Grant Bachman and Rob Stumpf, who will move forward with their work as the process goes. Going through all of the various steps, the basic steps that again exist are the TPA, the JCBA, the SLI, and then finally merging the MECs, which are covered in that previous podcast and looking within each one of those steps of the work that needs to be done. Keep saying the hard part is knowing the pacing of each step, especially given the recent DOJ ruling on the um, JetBlue and and Spirit merger, but we'll talk about that here in a second. Hey, Will, on the topic of the JetBlue and Spirit merger, maybe we can talk about that for just a minute. There's a lot of questions come up since that merger has essentially been blocked and people are naturally making the parallel with the Alaska-Hawaiian merger. How comparable are those two things? Yeah, I mean, it's true that the it, it was blocked and uh, it is on appeal, so we'll see. But I think that we do hear a lot of armchair quarterbacking about whether or not that ruling or that merger is applicable or is similar to ours in any way, shape, or form. And uh, I think we've said it on previous podcasts that each merger will stand on its own merits in terms of whether or not it receives DOT, DOJ approval. Notably, the companies had their initial meetings with the DOJ and the DOT, as well as several state attorneys general, and just largely uh, an initial meeting to discuss concepts. And I don't think that we're going to see much of an impediment, again, with our merger being different in the same way. You can't use the same yardstick that was used uh, in the JetBlue Spirit merger, which dealt with uh, the ULCC model, for example, as well as uh, much more, a much greater competitive overlap of their route structures. 
Yeah, thanks, Will. I just wanted to clear that up before we moved on to the next thing. Let's keep talking about the work the whole MEC has been doing with the Hawaiian MEC. Yeah, a piece of our joint meeting was to lay the groundwork for a second round of strategic planning. That happens in Honolulu later in, in February at the very end. We'd had one previous meeting of just key committee members to get together and discuss largely the agenda for the joint MEC meeting, as well as picking specific dates on the, uh, the future joint meetings, things like that. We'll begin the, to structure and pace the contract comparison work that the JNC is going to do, look at timelines for contract education, polling, which I know is already set. We can talk about that here in a second. And all of those necessary steps before we start, that is pilots start to define direction on the JCBA, which is where I know our focus is. Speaking of which, our next joint MEC meeting is in March, on March 12th through the 14th in Honolulu. Thanks, Will. I thought that was a productive meeting that we had. And then the following week was the regular MEC meeting and Chairman Summit. Can you fill in what went on then? Yeah, the first quarterly MEC meeting, which, as you said, uh, encompasses Chairman Summit, which I think is a great event. We have all of the chairmen of the various committees that serve the pilot group come together, present their body of work over the last year, talk about the challenges they face and the work they're doing. And, and they often find that they face the same challenges and where their work threads in with the other committees. So it's certainly a good opportunity. We recognized several outgoing reps who have been with us through the, uh, the CBA battle and welcomed several new reps into the fold that start on March 1st. And uh, you know it was a, a good discussion as well as the awards banquet. Part of the meeting obviously was devoted to what I think we should spend a little time talking about here, which is the Max 9's impact and its return to service. We've gotten questions from a few pilots, you know, asking for more detail. What do we know? And I can tell you that as a party to the NTSB investigation on this accident, we have very strict limits on what we can communicate, and we will certainly not talk about conclusions as far as the incident went, but I can tell you that we do know a few things. Safety team and ALPA officers were involved from the very moment that the flight had a problem, and we've had a good dialogue and involvement with the NTSB as well as the company throughout this process. The most important thing to note, of course, is that the crew did an outstanding job handling that emergency, and I think we should all commend them for their professionalism. Today, as we record, uh, we were part of the recognition ceremony and remembrance ceremony for Alaska Flight 261. And I will say that uh, it certainly underpins the core thing we have to focus on is safety and professionalism. The impact of the investigation has certainly been twofold. It's taken time, but it has a lot of uncertainty that's impacting the airline. Uncertainty initially on when those 65 MAX 9s would fly again. And as you know now, as we record, they're finally returning to service. A lot of uncertainty about whether the scope of the investigation would grow from simply the MAX 9s to also inspections or limitations on the 900ER. Would the scope of inspections be greater than the plug door? And would it impact our future aircraft deliveries? Uh, it's that last piece that's still kind of in play. And given that, in addition to the planned return to lessors of the uh, older 900ERs this year, there really has been just a lot of uncertainty in this last month or so in the company's staffing numbers and certainly as we plan growth throughout the year. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up that staffing question. I think that's on a lot of pilots' minds, especially as we've seen things like, for example, in the last couple of months, the unpaid leaves offered from the company and things like that. Yeah, it's been noticeable. The company's been vacillating between large bids to small bids and anything in between. So it's been 
poignant to see that they've been shrunk down recently. Yeah, that's a great point, Brad. Yeah, which kind of gets back to my point on the uncertainty. We've already seen that capacity pullback in Q1 by so many airlines, and that's when the company initially found themselves imbalanced, as they like to say, with a whole bunch of captains that they'd upgraded early in anticipation for front-of-the-year growth this year that then got pushed into June. And that initial attempt to handle that imbalance were those unpaid leaves that we saw in January, February, and then initially in March. And then you add in that max nine uncertainty, and suddenly the staffing imbalance wasn't just a three-month thing. And we definitely needed a better tool and certainly wanted to avoid what we were hearing whispers of, which was a downgrade bid to deal with it. That's what brought about what I think we're going to talk about it today. I know we are because Wilhelm's here with LOA 2401, the incentive lines, uh, something that I might add, we had heard a number of pilots ask for in lieu of the unpaid leaves of January, February, even before the MAX 9 situation blossomed. While we discussed something similar to that, to those incentive lines at the top of the year, I will note that we were unable to reach an agreement that worked, I think, for the MEC and for the pilots. And then the MAX issues occurred, and that kind of changed the landscape quite a bit, introduced that additional uncertainty we're talking about. David, can you describe that LOA in more detail and what brought it about and how it's going to work? Yeah, absolutely, David. Yeah, uh, Thanks, uh, Will, also for kind of the intro into this aspect. But as Will pointed out, uh, the company had came to us months ago with the concept of incentive lines similar to what we saw during COVID. We had a very difficult time coming to agreements on terms during that period as the scenario prior to the, uh, the MAX issue was dramatically different. Uh, but once we did encounter the max issue, the company reengaged, and that's where this LOA 2401 came from effectively. So this LOA, I think one of the most important things I like to hammer on is that it gives the association a tremendous amount of control over when and even if it is utilized. And it's a template agreement, so to speak. So it'll live in the back of the CBA, but every time if we were to reengage and use it again after this first use, which is just for three months, the template of 2401 would be used, but the parameters could be adjusted and likely would be adjusted to, to be tailored to that specific scenario that we're utilizing the ILs for. And how many parameters are you able to adjust? It's, it's pretty broad, honestly, David, um, but specifically labeled in the agreement, um, the guarantees. In this particular agreement, we agreed to 40-hour guarantee for the pilots. In future agreements, assuming we did go down that path, that number could be changed. The utilization of vacation in this agreement, we uh, pilots are allowed to have up to seven days of vacation in the bid period where they were awarded an IL. That could be augmented also in future possible agreements. And then the, the duration is probably the most significant. And what's unique about this IL is it's, you know, we, it's, we agree to the months of March, April, and May, but each month is bid independently. So uh, it should give more pilots access to these ILs potentially because of the individual bid for each month. But again, future agreements, could, we could change that. But it's not set in stone. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of this particular LOA is it does give us that flexibility. And, and most important is we get eyes on how many pilots in each base and position will be offered and awarded. And we get a, effectively veto rights on that. It's like, you know, if, if, we're don't, if we feel that the numbers are going to impact a base negatively, you know, whether it be for bid block holder flexibility or just hammering our reserves too much, we, we can say no. And, uh, and those numbers have to go through the MEC for each agreement that we come to. And that is one key feature that I, I do want to talk about, that this is a template because 
having been involved when we did the EILs during the COVID era, things like that, it really did boil down to discussions about the number of participants that you're looking for, and how many pilots do you want to participate in the leaves. And we learned back then being able to control the number of those leaves. And obviously then that pay value is going to be determined by how sweet do they have to make the pot in order to get the participation that they want. And that feature is going to pay dividends should we ever have staffing imbalances or downturns, things like that to deal with. We've effectively turned what would have been in former days a furlough threat into an economic solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the company has tools of their own to augment uh, issues when they have staffing imbalances. And we as an association want to play a big role in how those staffing imbalance tools are used. And, and this, I think, as you point out, gives us gives us that control and the flexibility for the future because we really don't know what's going to come down the pipe um, as we uh, go forward. So the flexibility is key. Hey, David, can I ask you to flesh something out just a little bit more? You, you brought it up a minute ago. One of the provisions in, in this LOA is that the MEC will have insight into how many of the incentive lines the company wants to offer. And you'll have some say in you know, whether you think that's a good idea, whether it's too much or too little. Flesh that out. Like, How does that work? And what is the purpose of having that kind of control from, from the MEC's perspective? Yeah, that's a great question, David. So the key is with CBA 2022, we have some really nice features for trading flexibility and changes that we'll see even more once PBS is implemented and all the reserve rules from, uh, again, CBA 2022 are fully in play. And when we encounter a situation, which we've already done in this case, where the company wants to offer these ILs, they bring the numbers of ILs that they desire. The scheduling committee really looks into each individual base and position and ensures that those numbers won't have negative impact. You know, we want our reserves to not be over, overutilized. We don't want to smoke the reserves. And the bid block holders need to have that trading flexibility that's baked into the contract already. So if the numbers that are being proposed are going to interfere with either of those features or other unforeseen issues that impact the pilots negatively, we want to be able to have a say in those numbers and not allowing too many or perhaps even too few. You know, sometimes uh, more could be offered. I, I think it just gives us a tremendous amount of input on that aspect of the LOA. And that global we, of course, that we're talking about is the MEC. Yeah. 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 In yeah. this case, each proposal or each version that this agreement would be used, the MEC, your elected reps, have the opportunity to look over the SME provided numbers, proposals, things like that, and decide whether or not it's a, a benefit to the pilots. That's a great point. From the strategic point of view, Spent a lot of time interacting, listening to P2P and the other pilots, and we have heard feedback that pilots are questioning, why exactly do sometimes we have these LOAs, and what are their purpose, and why don't they live inside of the contract? It's a good question, and the answer is to affect uh, changes like this, specifically to react in a time frame that's shorter than the contract cycle. Yeah, I mean, they allow for contract improvements and adjustments in between formal Section 6 cycles. In a lot of ways, they allow us to adapt and do things really favorably for the pilots. One thing I'd point out is that the LOA 2308 from last fall, which dealt with the market rate adjustment, was again a one-time exception to allow for the exclusion of Southwest from the pay formula. And the agreement that we reached in that LOA enabled us significantly higher compensation values than would have been afforded the pilot group had we been stuck with the strict interpretation of the language as it was written. That was one of those agreements where we sat down and talked about the spirit of what we meant at the table 
and management agreed. And so, but it did require an LOA. Precisely. Also, we've heard some concerns that why do some of these LOAs not require total membership ratification? Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Brad. You, you know, the reality is, is we have elected reps in every base and that's their function. And we're always fully engaged with these reps. That's why we have MEC meetings. Will pulls us together every week on a phone call and we talk to these reps and we get the feedback from all the pilots out there through these reps. And the LOAs are built, MOUs are built based on this feedback from the reps. And then they are all ratified through the reps. So we, we do take this information through these elected representatives. And it's, it's definitely not a single party system. We get a lot of feedback both directions and we have quite a few arguments in the process, but this is how we come to our conclusions ultimately on uh, all these LOAs and MOUs. Which really underscores the importance of obviously participation in the local council elections and putting people who are good critical thinkers in those seats. And we're very fortunate to have that. And I'll put a final point on it, which is that when we talk about the idea of what goes to membership ratification and doesn't, obviously pay, working conditions, things like that that substantially impact is the global concept. But the MEC is the body that decides independently whether certain topics or LOAs or MOUs or something like that would be subject to membership ratification. It's not decided here by one or two people or written very concretely in policy. We bring it before the body. The body looks at it and they feel empowered to move on the pilot group's behalf, or in some cases, then we would obviously see things put out for membership ratification, should it be necessary. Yeah, I'll just add that it really underscores the importance of the role reps play. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, actually, when I was brand new in this industry, I thought of the rep as the person you called if you got into trouble. And, and that's about as far as it went for me. But they are the body that has a huge impact on all of our careers. So it's really important to know who they are, to engage with them, as Will says, to vote. And not only for the local issues, they also make up the governing body at the board of directors, which is the highest body. When we use that vague term, Alpa National, that's actually what we mean. It's the collective block reps and or status reps from all of the industry coming together. And so every pilot member is just one degree of separation away from the highest governing body of ALPA and, of course, the highest governing body here at the local level. So they have a big impact on what your contract is going to look like and therefore what your career is going to look like. So sorry to belabor the point, but it's an issue near and dear to my heart about how we're organize as a representational structure. Yeah, no, I appreciate the tangent and I'll go ahead and pivot it back to what we were talking about. We also have heard some feedback in terms of the timeliness. When we come back to membership ratification, that's a timely process. And I think we'll get into it here in a little bit that sometimes there are situations and needs that arise as well, where the timeline for allowing a membership ratification, education, and vote to preclude what might be an adverse impact on the pilot group doesn't make that a reality. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. In this case, trying to avoid a downgrade bid. All right. Well, I think we went down a a couple sidetracks there, but I think they were worth talking about. So let me just summarize what I'm hearing about the current LOA. It allows the company to recover quickly to uncertainty, but it gives those who want it paid time off. And in addition, it should bring up line values something the soft block hours of January and February had pilots talking about a lot. But 
There's another issue that I want to address head on. I brought it up at the top of the episode, but there's also some questions and concerns about the suspension of the ability of reserves to pick up on their days off. So why is that? A couple things I want to point out, David. Obviously, the agreement that allows for reserves to fly on their days off is not just something that's kind of unique to us in the industry, but also something that we did try so, so hard to get put into the body of the contract or negotiations for the CBA. And we were just simply unable to. The company, as you know, from COVID times, has uh, found it unpalatable to them in certain instances, which is why the agreement had a, and has, a 30-day kill switch on it that enables the company to rescind that ability. And we firmly believe that that was probably going to happen in this case as well. Had we not been able to transition the agreement, retain the agreement in 2402, which we'll talk about here in a second, enhance it a little bit, albeit for a three-month suspension. So let's not forget that in the past, we, we struggled when staffing was soft and the company just started to unilaterally not honor the ability for our reserves to pick up on their days off. And ultimately, it led to us to rescind the agreement because they simply weren't honoring it. In this case, I think, though, they would have, they would have killed it. And I think that was the belief overarchingly amongst us here in the, the room. Okay. So, David, I think what I'm hearing is that it was really a, a threat facing us that the company would kill 2206, which gave reserve pilots the ability to pick up on their day off. And so, in lieu of that, you were able to negotiate the incentive line, LOAs, and the 2402, which actually enhanced that. Is that a fair description? Yeah, and that's absolutely true. You know, our goal was to, to maintain that ability for our reserves to pick up on their days off in the long term, obviously. So we felt it was obviously safer to suspend it during these IL periods, which will be used judiciously as we already expressed. But uh, the enhancements to, to uh, 2206, which is now LOA 2402, allow for reserves to not only pick up trips on the days off, but also seat subs, which has been something that's kind of been requested for quite some time. And we were finally able to attain that and put that into the LOA and also to uh, list themselves for VSA. And, and what's kind of unique about this VSA feature also is that unique to our peers in the industry, if a reserve does get a VSA trip on a day off, it pays entirely above guarantee, not just the premium piece. So, so it's actually a really, a really good enhancement to this LOA. Yeah, David, those are all great enhancements to uh, reserves picking up on their days off. And I know we've received some darts lately of questions of how come bid block holders didn't have a similar thing happen to them. And one of the things I'd point out is over the last several months, the line averages for bid block holders has gone down between 76 and 77 hours. So as a group, everybody has had reduced hours that they could get during this time period. One other wrinkle there is they, they're still able to pick up on their days off, though. That's true. You, they can pick up more time, but there's not that much time as a, as a whole out there in open time. So it's not like everybody can pick up. So, yes, somebody's going to be able to pick up and find some trips. But as a group, we've all had a lesser extent of, of trips available in open time. Hey, Will, you mentioned almost in passing the threat of a downgrade bid. I don't want to move off from this topic without maybe putting some more light on what you meant there. Yeah, no, I, actually, that's a very good point. We need to come back to that. And I'll put a final point on this, that we've talked about the uncertainty and the staffing issues that we had. The company had an existing staffing imbalance, you know, too many captains 
coming into the beginning of this year. They'd upgraded them in anticipation of the Q1 growth. And then the economy changed so that that growth got pushed out to the right to the latter part of the year, which led to those Band-Aid maneuvers we saw with the uh, leaves of absence offerings in January and February. And then we added in the uncertainty of the, uh, the max deliveries. And now all of a sudden you don't have a three-month problem. You've got an entire year problem. And that meant that like the threat of a downgrade bid, which had been discussed just in passing at the top of the year, became a genuine threat in terms of a cost-effective way for the company to deal with the staffing imbalances and the uncertainty. And I would say that 2401 is a good way to save the company that same amount of cash without a more permanent negative impact to the pilots in form of downgrades or the, you know, the permanent rescission of the ability for reserves to fly on a day off. I think that's probably how you have to pull this together to summarize what's happened here in the last month or so with the company and with the MAX. That's a good point. Something was going to happen, and had we done nothing, it probably wouldn't have been a great solution from a pilot perspective. Yes, and, and but for the MAX, you know, if we were just dealing with block hours being pushed to start ramping up in June, that really didn't make a downgrade bid feasible. It just didn't make economic sense. But as soon as you had more runway in front of you with the uncertainty on the max deliveries, now now things got a little bit more active in terms of those discussions about them proposing a downgrade bid to deal with the, the staffing imbalance. So we get the same economic result for them and preserve the quality of the pilots' lives who hold those junior captain seats in the process. Scott, we just recorded a podcast about preferential bidding that's just about to come live. But as long as we're here, let's Give us the highlights of PBS and what pilots need to be aware of. Yeah, sure, David. PBS is here. It's time to start looking at the study materials, the training materials that are on the pilot webpage under the PBS tab to prepare for our mock bidding that's going to start February 12th. There'll be three rounds of mock bidding. Each round, you'll be able to participate, submit a bid, see the award, reach out to the pilot PBS ambassadors that will be at the airports, do an airport sys during each round of mock bidding to get help, understand once you get an award, how come you got that award and make adjustments to either a mistake you made or a different strategy or technique on how to submit your bid. And then we'll do that three times. Keep in mind, if you participate in all three rounds and hit the submit button and submit a bid, that you'll get the 10 hours of pay. And then we go live April 1st, we'll start bidding for the May bid period. You know, since we launched that podcast, David, a couple of days ago on PBS, a couple of the questions we've been getting from pilots is, when am I going to be able to access the actual NABLUE interface? And again, that will be on February 12th. The reason for that is there's still uploads that we need to do with new updates from NABLUE that have to occur between now and then. So on opening day of mock bidding is when you'll actually be able to get on the interface and, and start using it. The other question we've been getting is how come it takes three days to do an award in PBS? And the reason for that is it takes them three days to do all the runs because you have to run each base, each seat. Usually you have to do multiple runs. It takes time for each run to occur. Seattle, for instance, might take an hour to get one solution. So that's why you need the three days is to be able to complete all those runs, do all the admin, and then publish the accurate award at the end. Okay. 
again, the training materials are, are out there. We've been getting good questions from pilots already. Yeah, and some of those questions are about the new reserve system. And I'd say the maybe one of the best resources to get answers to those are from the podcast that we recorded during the tentative agreement process. And you can find that by looking for TA6 Reserve is the title of that podcast episode, but I'll put a link in the show notes for it as well. And I will emphasize it is time to start looking at that stuff so that when we get to the first mock bid, you've had some preparation, you're ready to engage the PBS ambassadors or call the PBS hotline and get your questions answered. And then you'll have that whole first week also to do the same ambassador stuff, enter that first mock bid, hit the submit button. And I caution again, like we did on the podcast, the save button in NavBlue only saves it to the local device. It does not submit your bid. So that's why we say submit, submit, submit. And then just to highlight one particular date is April 1st, it's real. So you do all this before that happens and have the most likely good outcome or an outcome that you're hoping to get on. The well, bid. and that's why it's incentivized so high with the 10 hours is right. to get high pilot participation. One, we'll get better bid results from the, the mock bids. And two, pilots will be more familiar with it. Again, it's not rocket science, but it does take a little bit of your effort to look at the materials and become familiar with it. Mostly so you're comfortable submitting your bid. Okay, Scott, thanks for that recap. And for anyone who wants a lot more of a deep dive on what's coming up in PBS, please go back and listen to the most recent podcast. If you've got your feed there, it'll be the one right below this one. So let's move on to what's happening next. What can pilots expect to see and be involved in? So Brad, this is uh, your department. What's going on? Yeah, thanks, David. You can expect to see a lot of Unity events in the next few months. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the first Unity events we're going to have is a coffee sit and a pub event on the 7th of February, with there's a chance for uh, all pilots, Alaska pilots and Hawaiian pilots to meet the Joint Negotiating Committee. All six of them will be in town. So it'll be a great opportunity to meet all six of them and uh, see how they're going to be working hard for you. Keep your eye out for comms on the details of that. Polling is going to be coming. It's going to be one of the ways we're gathering information. There'll be surveys. You can expect to see all of those. There's going to be more family awareness uh, events that'll be coming out both online and in person. We'll have more coffee sits as well. And I'm going to follow up. You mentioned this briefly about the polling, but it's a question that we often get, like why in this digital age don't we just do surveys? And we will do that. And I won't belabor the point here, but I, I do like to stress the point that there are a number of ways the MEC gathers information about the pilot group. Polling is just one of those. It has some specific benefits, and that's why we use it. But we have other things that have benefits, and, and we'll use those as well, including surveys and, and these pub events that are a great way to interact directly with the elected leadership. Yeah, David, absolutely. And Will, from your perspective, what's next on, on your horizon? Well, the obvious, which is uh, the impact of the MAX 9 return to service and specifically our future delivery stream, those types of things, fleet decisions and how they impact our pilots. And then our overarching uh, goal, which is to finish up the implementation pieces of CBA 2022 in the form of the PBS new reserve system. I think those are critical to the quality of life of the pilots. Okay, thanks. And Will, I assume you have some closing remarks you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the the theme that we've brought up time and time again is that if anything, 2024 is kicked off as kind of a period of, of uncertainty, right? 
There's uncertainty on the MAX 9, and more specifically, the delivery stream as our future orders do come. And then likewise, there's uncertainty on DOJ pacing, merger pacing, approval, things like that. And our goal is to focus twofold, most importantly, on the things that we can control, which is PBS and implementation, continuing to work on things like contract comparison, education, and preparation in case that the DOJ timeline moves to the left faster than we thought. And the other is to continue to inform the pilots throughout the process about where we are. That's why we've got the merger updates. Even if there's not necessarily a a lot happening every other week or so, we'll at least have updates that stress progress on the timelines, both company timelines, our timelines, prep work that's being done, and the work that lies ahead so that everybody can feel like they at least understand where they are in process and in space. The most important thing we start doing from the pilot group perspective is building relationships with our Hawaiian counterparts and how to make this merger good, good for the pilots. That's the ultimate goal here and part of the goal with our Unity events and eventually we'll have joint Unity events, things like that. We've got to maximize the pilot value in this merger. And you've heard me say it many, many times, but foundational to the success of any of this, PBS and the merger is the continued engagement and you know building Unity, finding goals and the pilot group telling us where we need to go. And in periods of uncertainty, this is critical. We cannot afford distractions Safety and professionalism always come first. Stay engaged and stay informed and stay unified. Continue to talk to one another. Thanks, Will, and thanks for all of you coming in today. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chair, David Campbell.